1 Samuel 17. Again, one of the most familiar passages that we have in the Bible. Children learn about this at an early age. We've probably heard it taught many, many times uh, throughout the years. And, and the idea of it, just the, the very concept, is so ingrained in our culture from sports to politics, even to television. In fact, the new season of the show Survivor is called David versus Goliath. Now, what strikes me as ironic about all of that is when you tell about David and Goliath, everybody kind of accepts that. Well, it's, a, it's this team against this team. It's David versus Goliath or, or whatever. That, that, that theme, that concept is kind of widely accepted as something that actually happened as a historical incident. And yet the very thing that will redeem people and save them from their sin and give them eternal life what we just witnessed a picture of, people reject out of hand. The death and resurrection of Christ is fantasy, but David and Goliath's real. And it's interesting how man picks and chooses what we want depending on how much it affects us. Now, one of the reasons David and Goliath is, is such a compelling uh, account, something that, that people gravitate toward, is that people love the underdog, right? Everybody loves the underdog. And what exemplifies more than that than a little kid with a slingshot standing up to a nine-foot giant who wanted to tear him apart, said, I'm going I'm to rip your bones apart, I'm going to feed you to the birds, I'm going to feed you to the animals. And, and this, this picture kind of appeals to our dislike of injustice. It kind of almost fires us up emotionally. There's maybe a little bit of a release of emotional anger that a bully's getting a taste of his own medicine because nobody really likes a bully, right? So to see this big bully Philistine guy threatening little David, and we kind of go, come on, David, you got to win this. We, we love the underdog. We love the little guy who wins. And that hostility and that desire for revenge is really hot in our culture right now. It's very prevalent, especially in our country, and we've seen uh, really on both sides of the spiritual spect uh, of the political spectrum in these Supreme Court hearings. I don't know if you've watched them. I don't know if it depresses you or angers you or what it does to you. I experienced just about every emotion this week, but there, there's these claims of unfairness and dishonesty and partiality, and, and you kind of get the, the feeling that, that the truth's not going to win in the end. And, and I, I think it's one of those rare situations where people from both political parties would claim that they're the David, that the Goliath of injustice and manipulation and all that, that's on the other side. We're, we're the David. We're the one that's trying to, trying to gain the victory against the big bad bully. Now, we're not going to wade deeply into politics this morning because it's just kind of a mess. And with these baptisms that we just saw, we've witnessed the powerful purity of God's grace. We've witnessed what happens when people love truth and they trust Jesus and they yield uh, away from their sin and they're transformed by the grace. We've seen the beautiful picture of that. I don't want to take away from that. But we're also going to kind of understand in this little study this morning that that the impression that's always been given about David and Goliath, that, that David was this huge underdog, that he was at a great disadvantage, that that impression is completely wrong. 
And the truth is, and I, and I hope this will really encourage and strengthen us this morning, that the truth is that, is that David really had a tremendous unbeatable advantage. He had a greater advantage than Goliath. He was the one who was undoubtedly going to win. Now, we've uh, started this new series, and I want to use this study, even though it's so familiar to us and we've heard it before, I want to use this study to, to show about the advantage that we have as believers. When you look at what they call the optics of David and Goliath, everything argues that David is going to lose. He's at a disadvantage in stature. He's at a disadvantage in terms of weaponry, in terms of experience. He's not battle-tested. He's not a great warrior. He's not equipped. Nothing about it screams that he's going to win. Everything that's tangible, everything that is, that is logical on the face value says that he's going to lose big. But here's the spiritual truth that we live under. Not the the tangible, not the obvious. We live under the understanding of God's authority and power. And that's a different reality. That's a reality that the world doesn't really understand and fights against. Now, so far in our studies, we've looked at Esau and this bowl of stew. We looked last week at Gideon and the army of 300. And we've already seen the impact of small things and small decisions and how the Lord works through them. And the, the object really for this morning, it, it seems like it's the rock. It seems like it's that one stone that found its mark on Goliath's forehead. But, but I've become convinced the more that I've studied that, that the real small thing is David. David, who goes out there, David, who is bold and confident, trusting the Lord, and, and, and a man full of conviction. In fact, I would hope this morning that we understand the great contract, uh, contrast between David's conviction and not only Goliath's defiance of God and hatred of God and ridicule of God, but, but as I studied, I discovered there's a third factor. There's David's conviction, there's Goliath's conviction, and then there's the conviction of the people. Because the more you study this passage in depth and kind of go beyond the surface of what we already know, the more you see the role of the people, the people of Israel who simply did not again and again and again want to obey God. And when we look at the contrast between the convictions, we see this morning the, the decisions and the values of those who genuinely love the Lord against those who don't want to love the Lord. Now, living by our convictions is direly important. Living by our convictions is everything. And again, in the last week, we've seen a sharpening of the divide, if that's possible, a sharpening of the divide in our country. And let's be clear, let's be abundantly clear that this has nothing to do with the actual will of the people. It has nothing to do with making sensible laws. It has everything to do with beliefs and convictions about what the Bible says. This is not politics. This is not Supreme Court. This is not which side's going to win the midterms. This is all about whether or not you trust and obey what the Bible says. And let me tell you why that's true. 
All the commentators yelling on air are going to tell you that it's about something different, but the essence of all political discourse is about biblical issues. Abortion, gay marriage, illegally defying the law, sexual sin, the roles of men and women, the value of every life, alcohol and drug use, we are given clear instructions about every one of them in the Bible. And like Israel, the crisis in our country is caused by a blatant refusal to obey what the Lord's told us to do. So that's the divide right now. It's not whether somebody did something 36 years ago. The divide is whether this country wants to obey what God says. And I think we've discovered that it doesn't. At least the people in leadership don't. But I think there are people in the country that do. And as this open hostility and this resistance to God has become more bold and more outlandish, I've almost gotten to the point, and I'm a very optimistic person, but I've almost gotten to the point where I'm wondering, can we ever recover from this? Because the enemy has made such substantial gains of having his agenda advanced. Now, as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, that fact needs to remind us of four important things. And I want to encourage you to write these down. These aren't going to be on the screen, but, but just write these down in, in just short form. There are four important things that we need to remember based on what we've seen, especially over the last week. Number one, Jesus' return is imminent. Jesus' return is imminent, and we need to be ready, and we need to be prepared at all times because it can be any moment. Number two, until he returns, we are called to boldly be salt and light. Until he returns, we're boldly called to be salt and light, to go into the world, to share the gospel, and to make disciples of all nations. That's our job. That's really our only job. Go out and make disciples. So he's about to return. We have a job. Number three, we're fully empowered by his Holy Spirit. Jesus has gotten victory over the enemy, and the Holy Spirit equips us and says, you are more than conquerors through Christ. So we can't walk around going, well, I don't know what to do, and I don't know how to do it, and I'm weak, and, and, and the forces are too strong. Nope, we're more than conquerors. Greater is he that's in us, he that's in the world. We, we cannot ever say, I don't have enough of God, unless we're just living in blatant sin. And the fourth fact is, to remain strong, we need to obey Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves, encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. So our job to stay strong is to keep doing this, hold fast together, hold fast to our conviction, Keep looking to the sky. Keep encouraging one another. Don't forsake walking with the Lord because he's coming back soon. And it could be today. And the world will be rocked. Now, David is one of the best examples of holding fast to your conviction without wavering that we have in the Bible. His his unflinching faith here, his steadfastness in terms of defending the Lord leads him to think and act in a way that seems unusual. And yet, as I thought about this this week, really what we're going to view this morning should not be at all unusual for a servant of the Lord. 
And that really is, is the point of our study. I'd like for us to identify this morning four convictions that define God's people. Four convictions that define God's people. And by God's people, you notice the definition underneath. Those who love and fully trust the Lord. Not God's people because I made a decision at a campfire when I was nine and I prayed to receive Jesus and now I'm going to heaven but I'm not really living for him. That's not really being God's people. God's people are those that love him and live for him. Those that trust him with all their heart because how can we really call ourselves God's people if we don't love him? How can we really call ourselves God's people if we will not trust him? What did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. All other commandments yield to that one. If you don't love the Lord, you're not going to love me because those that love me keep my commandments. So if we don't love the Lord, we're going to have to struggle to say, well, I'm one of God's people. Well, but you don't love him. And then the second part of trusting is the Bible says in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, if I cannot please God with a lack of faith, then how can I claim to be one of his people if I refuse to trust him? And not just trust him when I'm in crisis or trust him when things are going well, but to trust him at all times. So, so if you and I are God's people, and I pray that we are, but if we are, we need to see what David does as the norm, not as some ideal. This is how we should act all the time. And here's the wonderful thing. When we do that, it leads to some amazing experiences that the Lord can use in ways that are beyond our comprehension. Because remember, it only took one stone for David to beat to Goliath. And that was the Lord. One stone. He didn't have to keep throwing, keep targeting. It just took one stone. But listen, David was also the only one willing to be there. And there are times we're going to have to stand alone for the Lord, but that's all he needs. There's a famous quote by D.L. Moody, and I'm sure you've heard it many, many times. I hesitated because it's probably a little overused, but D.L. Moody said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I am to be that man. I actually believe that Moody was not completely right on that because I think there have been many men and women who have become very close to being fully consecrated to God, who have given their lives completely to the Lord. And I believe David's one of them right here in 1 Samuel 17. That explains why he's standing in the middle of a valley all by himself, facing a guy who's about four feet taller than him and saying, I'm going to win. There's an unshakable confidence. There's a, there's a complete determination that he is there and he's going to win big. And that's because David lived by his convictions. So let's read a couple of verses this morning. First of all, start in verse 26. Verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Okay, four convictions that should mark and identify God's people. Number one, God's people stand for truth. 
God's people stand for truth instead of tolerating trash talk. Now, when David shows up on the scene, he's bringing food to his three older brothers who are there for battle. And, and it's not hard, and we know this well, so I'm not going to read all 53 verses. But, but when David shows up, he's stunned by the situation that he walks to. He's absolutely dumbfounded. He's blown away. He can't understand why nobody is doing anything, why everybody is kind of hiding in the tents. And as Goliath issues this challenge to Israel, nobody steps forward. Saul is hiding. Everybody's cowering. Nobody's doing anything about the fact that that Goliath is cursing the Lord. Now, I think it starts out as kind of this, this simple mocking, like, hey, send somebody out here. I'm bigger than you, and your God's worse than our God, and we're going to take it. I think it kind of starts with that. But, but when David actually walks out, and you can see this in verse 42, he, he's just this young kid. He's a teenager, and, and he's not wearing any armor, and he's not holding a sword. He's just a shepherd boy with a slingshot, and that's when Goliath ramps it up. That's when Goliath says, oh, this is, this is what you're throwing me? What, what, are you throwing sticks at me? I mean, what, what's the deal here? And he curses David and he curses God. You know, this is so typical of the devil. He likes to throw all day long little spiritual pebbles at us, relentlessly barraging us with lies and accusations and insults and all kinds of general nastiness. And it seems on the surface some days like, like the pebbles aren't very harmful and, and, and it's not a big deal. But, but listen, if you don't believe that, that getting pebbles thrown at you all day long is going to harm you and damage you, you know, imagine what it would be like if somebody threw a handful of gravel at your head. I'm guessing that wouldn't feel good. And yet, that's what the devil does. He can't crush us with boulders, listen now, because he can't win. The devil can't win. He's already lost. So what does he do? He throws pebbles. He shoots fiery darts at us. And they just kind of pierce us and, and wound us and distract us. And you and I know how discouraging that can be, don't we? How, how it intimidates us and, and kind of makes us want to give up. In fact, I thought as David's out there, his humanity has to be screaming, what in the world am I doing out in this field? I just came to bring some coffee cake to my brothers. Like, why am I here? Because it wasn't where he should have been, and I'll explain that in a moment. And yet, as he goes down to the little stream and he gathers the five stones, he knows it's only going to take one. Because the Lord gives us all the resources that we need to live in victory. David immediately jumps into action because he quickly recognizes, look, nobody's willing to defend the Lord. Nobody's willing to take on Goliath. But, but everybody's forgotten. We're the army of the living God. We're the army of the living God. And, and we don't have to take this. God is so much greater than those worthless fake gods of the Philistines. So I'm going to go out there and we're going to have victory because I'm going to stand for truth. Now, we'll see what he says in a moment, but for a moment, look at verse 34, and let's read to verse 40. David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep 
When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will become like one of them, since he's taunted the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Saul doesn't believe that for one minute. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed them with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. Saul, David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Here's the second truth, the second conviction that we need to live by. God's people act out of integrity. God's people act out of integrity instead of an attitude of insolence. See, David's heart and his motives are pure. We know that based on three details in the text. The first is in verses 28 to 30, where David is criticized by his own brother, Eliab, his older brother, criticizes him for wanting to do what's righteous, for wanting to defend the name of the Lord, for wanting to take away the reproach of Israel. But, but Eliab goes after him, and he accuses him. He said, well, you just came here because you wanted to watch the battle. And the inference underneath that sentence is, you came here to laugh at us and mock us, because clearly we're not going to win. So why'd you come down here, little brother? You, you just come to make fun of us? What's the deal? And interestingly, I never noticed it till this week, in verse 30, when Eliab turns away, all the rest of the people join in. So the whole army, the whole nation is mocking David at this point. That's such a typical example of, of the lies and the lack of logic in the devil's accusations. If David was just coming down to ridicule and gloat, why would he say, let me go fight Goliath? He'd sit back and grab some grapes and say, go to it, boys. This is why I came. I paid money for this. I came from the show. I want to see you guys get defeated. See, this is how the devil works, and we saw it firsthand this week. The devil tries to undermine our integrity and undermine our credibility through personal attacks, hoping to dissuade us. So David goes in with a pure heart, and the first thing that happens is he's criticized. Second, notice in verses 34 to 37, that David remembers God's past deliverance to find confidence in the present. He's able to refute what Eliab says, and he's able to gain support for fighting Goliath, because he says, uh, let me tell you, let me tell you all the times when God's helped me. I'm just a shepherd kid. I'm just a teenager. But there was a time when a lion came and attacked the sheep, and God gave me the strength to defeat that lion. And then there was a time when a bear came and attacked, and God gave me the strength to defeat the bear. Listen, I, I, I want to tell you, that guy out there, he's nothing. I don't need a strategy. I don't need cleverness. I don't, I don't need to know how to trick him and to fool him so I can beat him. I'm just going to walk straight out there because the Lord's going to help me. Because the Lord's helped me before. And this is the powerful weapon that the Lord gives us 
both through his word, which we hold in our hands, praise him for that, and through our experiences. It's why testimonies like that this morning should stir us and excite us because we say, look at how God's worked. A 76-year-old woman saying, I'm standing for the Lord. How easy would it be just to say, I'm fine. I'm saved. I serve the Lord. I love the Lord. Walking with the Lord. I don't, no, come on. I don't need to do that. See, those experiences give us strength. And then third, would you notice that David's integrity showed by the fact that he's authentic. Saul says, well, this is a, this is a terrible plan, but, you know, let's go through the motions. Why don't we put some armor on you? I'll give you my own armor, and I'll give you a bronze helmet. But not only did they not fit, David says, I'm not wearing them. I'm not wearing them because I haven't tested them. So, so if, if David goes out and tries to wear these, he's going to kind of look like a poser, right? Like, like hey, look at me. I'm, I got Saul's armor on. I'm going I'm to handle this. What's fascinating about David is he never pretends to be something he's not. He's just a shepherd. And the Holy Spirit is very careful in verse 40 to detail that he goes out there with his shepherd's bag and his sling. He's wearing no armor, and he walks out to meet Goliath, just him. You know, authenticity is the big buzzword in Christianity right now. We need to be authentic, and the world needs authentic, and the world wants, and that, that's true. What's so ironic to me about that is so many churches and so many Christians are strategizing how do we present ourselves as authentic. Now, that defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Let's figure out how to make Harbor Rock an authentic church. Let's try to figure out how we can come across as authentic so when people come to see us, they'll believe that, that we are who we say we are. Listen, trying to make a show to get people in doesn't disciple them. One of the greatest ways that we can reach people for Christ, one of the greatest ways that we can draw people to the power of the gospel is to be ourselves, to humbly talk about the love of God, to humbly evidence the authentic change that the Lord has brought about in our lives, that we used to live this way, and now we live this way, that we used to be the old man, and now we're the new man, and we just love God, and we serve God, and we're confident, and we're strong from trusting in him, and don't you want to know about it? If that's who we are as a church, if we are genuine in our love for the Lord, and we are bold about it, we will never have to advertise that we're here. I guarantee you that people will be so drawn to that type of church because people right now, I've never seen it like I see it now, people are hungry for evidence that God's grace is real. They don't know it, but they're hungry for it. They want to know that this can't be what life is. It can't be. What we saw this week cannot be what life is like. They need something that gives them hope. And you know what? We have the message of hope. We're living evidence of the hope that's in Christ. And we remember David because his heart is a huge contrast 
to Goliath's audacious disrespect of God and to the people's dismissive disregard of the Lord. He just don't want anything to do with him. Now look over at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I'll give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord doesn't deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give you into our hands. Here's the third thing that marks the conviction of God's people. God's people boldly defend him instead of conceding to any defiance. God's people boldly defend him instead of conceding to any defiance. Now again, notice it's not just Goliath's defiance. The people of Israel were just as stubborn, just as rebellious, just as insubordinate. They had no trust in the Lord. They had no trust in his sermon. Because really, David should not have been the only one out there defending the Lord. When David showed up with the basket of bread and cheese, and he sat back, he, he should have been able to walk in and say, here, brothers, here's the bread and the cheese. I'm so excited by what I see going on because every single person in this army is rising up and saying, we're going to defend the name of the Lord. He's not going to talk that way about our God. This is the army of the living God. We're going out there. Everybody get ready. Everybody in? Oh, yeah, we're in. We are so ready. And David should have been able to walk in with the bread and cheese and sit back on the hillside with his hands behind his head and go, I can't wait to see this. Instead, he walks in, and everybody's hiding. They're conceding, and they're capitulating. They're, they're weak and timid and fearful and hiding and worried and scared and, 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 and crying and living in regret. Does anybody think that that should describe a child of God? Weak, timid, fearful, I don't know what to do. I, 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 I. No, no, that's not how it works. Strength is not produced by inactivity, is it? You don't get in shape by, and, and build endurance and, and get big muscles by laying on the couch eating Cheetos. I know this because I've tried it, and it doesn't work. You don't get stronger. You don't get more powerful. You don't have endurance. You don't have stamina and wisdom by just laying around. The physical principle is a spiritual one as well. So living in fear and timidity and sitting back and, and just, oh, Lord, please return soon because I don't know what to do. No, the Bible says God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but power, love, and a sound mind. And if you love the Lord and you trust him, we need to boldly defend him. Because hiding from the fight, because we hate conflict and opposition, shows no trust in the Lord. We're God's people, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, called to defend his name in the face of defiance. And as we see from 1 Samuel 17, this, this culture of open defiance is nothing new. With Israel all throughout its history, it's there. But, but this collision here between the Jews and the Philistines, it started, why? 
because of a sense of weakness in Saul. The, the Philistines may not have even known that God said, I've taken my hand off Saul and put it on David. But they're wise enough to know that Israel's ripe for the conquering. Because Saul has been so spiritually timid and so misguided in his direction that he's opened up Israel for attack. And all the people that have watched him and followed him have taken on the same posture. And now they're opposed to the Lord because they have not stood up for him. I believe this is a problem the American church is facing right now. It struck me last night late how few, if any, voices spiritually we heard in the last week. That not one that I know of, not one prominent pastor in this country called the, the nation to repentance and prayer and unity. Not one. And I follow the news. We have a Saul problem. And it's the result of indifference and in action. So the Philistines sense this. They get all the armies together and they come to the valley of of Elah. And we have a couple pictures I want to show you of what this looks like. You can see the valley of Elah in green. You see its proximity to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Saul was from the city of Gath, which was one of the five Philistine cities. All right. Next slide, please. Thank you. This is the valley of Elah. You see the road that's going through that follows a stream. You can see the green line uh, right by the road of where the stream is. But you've got hills here. Go to the next, please. You see on one side at the bottom was the Philistine army. You see on the top side was the Israeli army. And this wadi, this dry riverbed, uh, mostly dry, was going through. So there's an army on one side, just like the Bible describes. There's an army on one side, and there's an army on the other with a valley in the middle. If you look at the next slide, you see what this looks like. So in this valley right there is 1 Samuel 17. That's right where the battle was waged. So the armies of Israel are on one hill. The armies of the Philistines are on the other hill. And David and Goliath walked down into that valley. There's one more shot that will show you this up close. This is what it looked like. Now in that valley of Elah, the Philistines come and they challenge. And Goliath walks out and says, winner take all. One on one. You send somebody out to fight me. And whoever wins, the other army surrenders to the winning army. Now Saul, in verse 11, look back at it. He's in his tent. All his generals, all his soldiers don't have a plan. The nation's dismayed and scared and, and feeling absolutely defeated in their outlook. And that shouldn't surprise us at all because it's indicative of the spiritual condition of Israel. Saul's reign had been an absolute disaster. Complete mess. Not because the people didn't love him. Not because the Lord wasn't willing to help him. Not because he didn't have leadership skills. The problem was, Saul didn't seek the Lord and he didn't obey the Lord. You know, it's, it, it, it really should be very simple, right? Quietly in his heart, Saul was defiant before the Lord. And then it started to show he offered a burnt offering because he didn't want to wait for Samuel without the Lord's consent. And then he made unwise decisions. And then he openly resisted the word of the Lord. So Samuel comes to him in chapter 16, verse 28, and says, Sorry, the Lord's taken his hand off of you. This isn't your kingdom anymore. So Saul and the nation are fearful 
and they're impotent militarily because they're spiritually disconnected. And, and this emotional paralysis is a byproduct of their lack of hunger for the Lord. So we see in verse 11 that they're fearful. We see in verse 24 that they're fearful. We see in verse 28 that they become critical of the only person that's trusting in the Lord, and everything's a mess. And this is what happens when our hearts get hardened before the Lord. Everything turns upside down. When I see crisis, when I see fear, when, when I see people whose lives are out of control, it is a rare, rare, rare exception that it doesn't have to do with how they're walking with the Lord. Rare. Usually it can be easily identified. Are you walking with the Lord? Well, not really. And, and I've been trying, but there's been a lot of stuff going on. Are you praying? No, not really. Are you in the Word? Mm, not really. Are you wondering why your life is in crisis? Because this is real easy to identify. Start with those things and see what the Lord does. But they continue with no strength, no hope, no confidence, uh, just, just fearful, and then sin starts to harden them, and they disappear for six or eight weeks, and then to find out something. That, that, that's, that's what we're seeing here. But look at what happens. Oh, look at what happens when one person is willing to stand for the Lord. Look at what David does. We'll finish with this in verses 48 and 49. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came near and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his faith, face to the ground. Here's principle four. God's people run forward in confidence instead of falling back in reticence. God's people run forward in confidence instead of falling back in reticence. Now, any normal person would have been intimidated by the physicality of the scene. David's maybe 5'6", because that was about the average height of a man, although he's a teenager, so maybe he's smaller. Goliath checks in at 9 feet 6 inches. David has no armor. Goliath's armor alone, not even his sword and his shield, but, but his armor alone was 125 pounds. It's probably about what David weighed soaking wet. David has nobody backing him, nobody even daring probably to watch. They're all just kind of in the tent going, oh, this is going to end really badly. Goliath has the whole army of the Philistines. You saw the picture. The whole army of the Philistines up on the hill, just ready, just waiting for the moment when he takes on that little kid and breaks him like a twig. And they're all in this empty field in a valley, and there's not much escape. So it's really powerful to read in verse 46 that as Goliath came near, that David runs toward him. And it's not a light, oh, I hope God's going to come through. The text says, look at it, every word's important, that he ran quickly, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Now, it doesn't say he stopped to throw the stone, so I'm going to believe that he kept running. And as he's running, he's going, 
I'm not even going to aim because the Lord knows exactly where this is going to end up. You know, walking and running by faith is so much more rewarding than shrinking back in fear. I did a little word study last night of the times in Scripture when people ran. When the rain was coming after his spiritual crisis, Elijah ran to Jerusalem to see God's blessing. The shepherds ran to Bethlehem to see baby Jesus because they believed the angel's words. Peter and John ran to the tomb to see that it was empty because they remembered his words. Philip ran to the Ethiopian eunuch, eager to lead him to trust Christ. Rhoda in Acts 12 ran to tell the other apostles, Peter's not in jail anymore, he's at the front door. See, all these were moments of great faith where people believed the Lord is at work. And you and I, listen now, we need the confidence to run. We need the confidence to advance with assurance, often not knowing the details of what the Lord's going to do, but believing that he is going to work. Not doubting that he will work, trusting that he'll work, confident that he'll work, ready to see him work, and eager to see what that's going to look like. See, being a David is far from being at a disadvantage. In fact, it's the greatest advantage that we can have. We just need to be willing to be that one person, that one person that God can use. That one person that's ready. And if we're standing in the field alone and we're staring up at that giant, we know God's faithful. God's faithful. He's going to do this. I'm going to trust him. Because I'm here and I'm willing. And he will work. Let's thank him and praise him. Let's close our eyes.